0: The, you kind of like this guy, but when you can't decide between the filet fish <laughs> um, or the Big Mac, and he says... I'll get you both. Thank you. You definitely <laughs> yeah, like this guy meal. Get
1: it at McDonald's when you get two of your faves for just six bucks. Limited time only. Prices and participation may vary. Single item at regular price.
2: Less than 1% of the world's diamonds are worthy of the Forevermark inscription, a promise of beauty, rarity, and responsible sourcing. Forevermark, a diamond is forever. Find your design at forevermark.com.
0: This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer cold gold men, that's goldmen. That's G O L D M E N at checkout to get ten percent off Squarespace. Build a beautiful.
2: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of vanityfair.com, and I'm here in person with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hi, Katie. And with Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And this week, we've got two really incredible guests. First, we'll talk to Whoopi Goldberg, who is an Oscar winner, a four-time Oscar host, and a presenter at this year's ceremony. And when she was talking about this year's Oscar So White controversy a few weeks ago, she said she was really pissed off about all the nominees. So we're excited to ask her about how that feeling has lasted for her. Then we'll be joined by Tom McCarthy, who is the director of Spotlight, which is nominated for six Oscars this year, including Best Director for Tom McCarthy. He talked to us about what it was like kind of becoming a journalist as a director in making this film, and then also being in the presence of all of these real journalists from the Boston Globe at weird events, and what a strange contrast that is. Then finally, we'll go big before we go home and tackle two big categories, original screenplay and adapted screenplay. Hello, Whoopi. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It was so exciting to realize that after we invited you to come on that you were asked to present at this year's Oscars. So it's uh, even more topical. How did that call come through and uh, given that you've kind of spoken out about the controversy around this year's ceremony, was there ever any any hesitation for you in joining?
3: Well, no. I mean, and the the controversy, I mean, I'm sure people feel strongly about it, but I I've seen it several times. You know, I've been, been I've hosted the show when it was boycotted. So <laughs> you know, for the same reasons, you know, but, you know, for me, the the issue is like, you know, let's talk about making more film where people are hired, where lots of different people are hired, because you don't want to say just one group or just that group, because that doesn't help the situation. Let's make movies about uh, things that have something to do with the human condition and who we are on the planet. And if you, ch- you can change the makeup of the Academy all you want, uh, in my opinion, and I'm sure that'll be a good thing. But if you don't, if there's no one different to vote on, I, I feel we have the same trouble.
4: And Whoopi, do you have any thoughts about how Hollywood can change? Because obviously this, this change at the Academy, it, it seems like, OK, that's a step in the right direction. But, but what else can be done?
3: Well, I think it ha- it has to do with producers and directors sort of opening their heads, you know, when mm-hmm. you say we're going to do a female Ghostbusters, you know, let's, you know, where's Mindy Kaling? <laughs>
2: mm.
3: You know, right. why isn't she part of it? You know, why does it only have to be one person of color in each movie to make people feel like that's a big change? It's not. Let's really sort of gather folks together and say, hey uh, You know, if you're not making something very specific and historical, there's no reason why you can't have more than one person or two people in a movie. You know, balance it out a little bit, but it, it requires people sort of thinking beyond uh what they know requires folks to think beyond the box.
4: Well, even if it is historical, we're all looking at Hamilton as a huge hit, right? And so there's ways of reinventing things even that way.
3: Well, there are, but you will get much more shit from people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if you made The Diary of Anne Frank, you can't make Anne Frank an Asian girl. <laughs> I don't think. Now, would does that mean... That that's a good thing? No, because if you're telling a universal story, which is what Anne Frank is, everyone can sort of relate to it. Certainly Japanese girls can relate to it, and black girls and white girls, everybody can relate. So, you know, you're right. The, the, the idea of what Hamilton is doing is a brilliant way to do it, you know. Now, can people handle it? We'll see. But I like your idea. I <laughs>
0: Uh, One excuse that some people fall back on when they're talking about why there can't be more diversity in, in these big Hollywood movies is economic. They say, well, you know, there's just a certain segment of the population that wants to see X. Clearly that's not true. Well, clearly not. And I think your career stands in testament to that. I mean, you know, you have some some huge grossing comedies that you were the lead of and people were, you know, you were winning awards for dramas. I mean, so do you think that there's just kind of a stale thinking that way? I, or?
3: Well, I think that's just it's an old way of thinking and one that didn't work before and it doesn't work now you know the people who go see movies that they're interested in there is no reason why every superhero has to be white not there can be more than two superheroes of color even if you just make up a new goddamn superhero (laughs) you know what i mean just make up a new one but we all go see the Avengers and this and that. And, you know, so why why would you think if the story is not of interest to people that they're not going to go see it? Part of it is, you know, people don't want to have their movie looked at as an ethnic movie. But clearly, you know, things must be changing because while Straight out of Compton may not have gotten more Oscar nods, it certainly was a blockbuster mm-hmm. at the movies. Yeah. So clearly... There is an appetite for that, you know. I can, you know, Life of Pi, Bollywood movies. There are tons of movies that have lots of different people in them that people go to see if it's a good film, if it's an interesting film, and if it connects to you on some level, you know. And the idea that, you know, and I, you know, people keep saying, well, you know, the Academy is half or most of the Academy is sixty-two, sixty-three-year-old white guys. Well, those guys are all the guys that were coming up and made the changes. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? These are the guys that made the changes. The guy who is the partner of Ron Howard. Brian Grazer? Yes. Is the mastermind, one of the masterminds behind Empire. You look at what, you look at who these guys are. You're talking about folks who actually have made the changes that people keep saying they want to see. And the changes that now seem to be rolling in, not as fast, of course, as people would like them. Yeah, it would be great to see a movie every year where people of color and, and, and women are nominated. But it just, you know, every two years it's happening. But Mm -hmm. think about this, you guys. From 1939, when Hattie McDaniel was the first black female to when I got my Oscar. That's 70 years. That's how long it took for another black female to win.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Now, go from when I won my Oscar to the next time anybody won an Oscar. Any female, black female won an Oscar. It didn't take 70 years. So it's happening. It's not happening as fast. But, you know, put folks in movies where they might get nominated and magic might actually happen.
2: <laughs> so we, we wanted to uh, talk to you about that night that you won your Oscar. I was watching the speech on YouTube today. Uh, what, what do you remember about giving that speech? Is it all a blur for you or does it, is it really vivid? It's, really, it's a
3: big blur. <laughs> but I do remember this. I remember looking out and seeing, A, the women that I got to sit with who were also nominated in the category. Who I really, really liked. Mm-hmm. And all the folks like Gregory Peck and Sophia Loren and folks who I watched as a kid, you know, and who I got to meet and spend time with and saying, you know, you, this is, this is part of what you've produced is me. Whether, <laughs> you know, for better or for worse, <laughs> you know. I'm that kid that was sitting going, I want to do that. And no one told me I couldn't. Mm. No one ever said, well, you know, you're kind of dark. No one ever said that. And also, no one ever said, well, you know, because I I hoped to win a, an Oscar when I was a little kid. You know, nobody ever said, hey, you know. It might be a while because you don't look like everybody else.
2: Was that your parents who were just encouraging you in that way? Like My you...
3: mom was like, listen, you want to do it, you can do it. It might be hard because you got to be really good to win. Not you got to be white, but you got to be really good. And now I say that and I, I put a comma in that because what I'd love for you guys to do is to look up all the fabulous actors who were never nominated. Mm-hmm. Donald Sutherland. Cary Grant. I mean there are there are so many, you know, who have never fucking been
4: nominated.
3: So how can you know it's that it's that's what you have to that's what you have to take a look at. Well
4: do you think that that's what was behind somebody like Charlotte Rampling saying Hey, you know, almost there, there's definitely not enough Oscar nominations for anybody, let alone No, uh... she
3: no, what she said was ridiculous. <laughs>
4: yeah. I think
3: that's much I think it's closer to what Michael Kane was saying, which is be patient.
4: Mm-hmm. Right, okay. You know, because
3: mm-hmm. I think the rest of that conversation would have been, you know, be patient. There's so many people who have never been nominated. And mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with their color. It just has to do with This is how the votes go down. And that's the other thing is, you know, you can put as many people as you want in the academy. The votes will go down the way the votes go down. People like what they like when they like it. But if you have at least three or four other choices, Mm -hmm. maybe something great will happen.
4: Well, that seems to be the issue, is there's if, if there aren't enough Oscar-y movies being greenlit with multicultural cast, then, of course, you're going to have years where nobody's getting nominated.
3: Right. And then you have the years where it's like nothing but us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you're going, wow, do I go 12 Years a Slave or do I do the butler? Yeah. Right.
2: Or do
3: I do the help or do I do this? Or movies where you have people in... I mean, Ghost was never a movie anybody thought was... It was any, you know, maybe screenplay and shit, but certainly no one ever thought of it. Because, com- I mean, comedies don't normally get nominated. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So you don't ever know what's going to strike somebody's fancy. You just don't know. And, you know, would they have given it to me? I don't know. Is, is there a reason not to have given it to me? Yes, if people had, had decided to vote in a different direction. You don't ever know. Price Waterhouse is real.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, what changes after you won one? I mean, you know, it's kind of that question of like after people get married. Well, do you feel any different? Did you feel different after you'd won? Did did things? I mean, obviously, it was a great personal achievement and professional. But what was post Oscar life like in the kind of the immediate few days or months? Um,
3: pretty much what it's always been. You know, I always I have to find the things that I'm interested in doing, and sometimes there are things that other people have turned down. And you know, are did were movie scripts flowing to my side? No, I still had to go find stuff I wanted to do. That did not change. You know, what are you going to do?
2: And then you came back onto the Oscar stage a couple years later as a host, and I'm very curious about how different that felt. If, if maybe one was scarier than the other, stepping up on the stage and standing in front of the microphone.
3: No, you know, the the key to being an Oscar host is you actually have to like the movies. Mm. You have to like the cinema. You have to have some feel for what the Oscars are. You know, you can't be too cool for school and you can't try to make it your show. Mm. You know, the people want to know, hey... I'm going to sit and listen to you for the first five minutes. You can do anything you want. After that five-minute period, all I want to know is, did I win?
4: Right, (laughs) yeah. Mm -hmm. You
3: know, and the minute you forget that, the minute you make it a show about you or your peccadilloes, it changes. You know, and the best Oscar hosts like Billy, like Johnny Carson, understood that. That this show, the first five is yours. The rest of it, you got to be easy. You got to be able to flow. You you got to be able to go up and down, and you know all kinds of stuff. Cause stuff is happening on the on the fly all the time. You got to be ready for it. So you got to be present. You can't be looking for your next joke for you. <laughs> you got to have an idea of what's happening as you're working. And that is a that is something Chris knows, and he does it really well, which is why he's back.
4: Have you guys talked at all about what he's planning to do for this year?
3: No, child, no. <laughs> I'm busy trying to keep my job.
4: <laughs> <laughs> do you want to give him any free advice now in case he's listening? In case he's listening. Let's face it, he's you know probably what, not he, listening.
3: He he knows exactly what he needs to do. He's done it before. Yeah. And he's very good at it, and he's really funny, and he's very much a person who also loves the movie. And so you got to have that. You have to have a little history. You got to have a little, you got to love it. You know, it's not like any other award. It just isn't. You know, all other awards, they may come before, but they, they do not hold the candle because no one from, from being a little kid, and I don't know if it still happened, but I know it was happening up until about 10 years ago where little kids were still making Oscar speeches.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, because
3: it's, the it's, And people say, you know, you shouldn't be getting, you shouldn't be doing, you know, giving uh, awards for work. And they're probably right. You know, sure. But since they do, (laughs) you know, have some respect for it.
2: Do you have a favorite uh, personal memory from being up on that stage, either, you know, one of your famous costumes or a line that landed particularly well? Like when you're like, I am really nailing this Oscar hosting gig. No, but
3: one of my the, my favorite things
2: <laughs> was
3: doing I did Queen Elizabeth. Oh yeah. At okay. one point. And the next day the newspapers were saying, oh, she did it in wife face. <laughs> I was like what? <laughs> How do you not know what and and then I realized, well, okay, they don't they don't know.
2: They don't know that that was a it was a parody. They didn't see Shakespeare in Love where Judi Dench had her. Clearly, or, or any, anything else, they never, <laughs> I,
3: you know, any of Elizabeth, uh, uh, Betty Davis's Elizabeth, or, yeah. or, you know, I mean, how, the, how do you not know this? And these are the people who are writing about entertainment and shit. So, you know, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut, but these, you know what I mean? I mean, you should, you should, not that should be clear. Mm hmm. So it's between that and the year that I changed my clothes so I could wear all the clothes, all the wardrobe from the movie.
2: <laughs> See, that's what I wish Chris Rock would do. If there's one thing he would take from you, it would be the costume changes.
3: <laughs> See, but God, they're in that tux. Men are in that freaking tux, and yeah. they, you know, think, no, no. Because I don't want to be bothered.
2: <laughs> I,
0: I think Chris Rock as a young Irish immigrant would be, that would be <laughs> <Yeah>. really something. <laughs>
3: see, that would be so spectacular.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, Whoopi, you're an Oscar voter. Was there anything this year that you were really, you know, that you voted for that didn't get in or did get in? I mean, you know, you can't play favorites, but, uh, you know, you made your choices. Anything in particular?
3: Well, the, the, one of the things that I was sad to see didn't happen was I thought Louis C.K. was brilliant in Trumbo. Hmm. And so I, I was hoping he would get a nod, you know, because he was really good. And the little boy from Beast no and oh, yeah that he little was great. boy was terrific. He was. And I, those were two performances that I thought should have been nominated, you know, just because they were just, they were standout great performances, you know. And there's lots of great, there's lots of great stuff, you know, and, but then my question to myself becomes, well, who do you not give the nod to? Mm-hmm. You know, who do you who do you say, no, not you? So it's, you know, you, you have to kind of know that your favorite may not be in there. But I thought those were two standout performances.
2: Yeah, is it hard to fill out your ballot kind of knowing that you have to narrow it down and, you know, there's someone who you're not going to be able to include? Because that's, you know, it's a lot of pressure.
3: No, it's actually very easy. It's actually very easy. So I, you know, you you have that's the, that's the thing. Pick it, you gotta pick. So you pick. Now they got you know ten extra ten movies. Still, you know, it's not enough. You <laughs> want to give it to everybody, you know? Because really, the work that is has gotten a nod this year has been, you know, really good.
2: Yeah. What What are you? Uh, what are you excited about seeing? You know, going to the Oscars in person and you know seeing from backstage or in the audience this year.
3: I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Just because it's like, oh, I, I know how to do this. I've done this before. Yeah. So I'm always thrilled to see people who are nominated and people who have won and people who are presenting. I mean, for me, it's a, a, an opportunity to see folks I haven't seen for a long time because I'm always here. So it's nice to be able to go and, and look and say, hey, you were really great, you know, or... Say, hey, nice to see you again, or congratulations, welcome back, you know. So it's, it's nice, and when you've been around long enough, you know lots of people. And so that's kind of, uh, like, oh yeah, I know, oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember when you were little, you know. <laughs> it's like really freaky.
0: So you'll hit up some of the parties, or is this all happening at the show itself?
3: Um, it's For me, it's happening at the show, and I, I get to hang out with friends afterwards. So yeah. That'll be great, you know, take off my heels <laughs> and go. You know, because, uh, you know, I don't get to see, again, as I said, I don't get to see a lot of folks. So you was oh, come over, let's, you know, let's eat, let's do something, and I, it's like nice. It's nice to be there for a couple of days and then get back you know get back here and back to uh you know the big world that I'm <laughs>
0: yeah. it's sounds- I live in at the view it sounds like a very a really glamorous high school reunion in that way sort of or a family reunion
3: it's i think a family reunion is closer because you know when you've been around long enough you worked with a lot of different folks who are you know who were clapper loaders who are now up for academy awards cuz they've become the the uh dp you know director of photography or you worked with somebody who was a you know a wardrobe pa and suddenly you turn around and now they're head wardrobe person on the film it's really something and then actors you know just actors that you've grown up with and everybody's grown up together kind of lovely.
4: Whoopi, you, you're one of the rare people who has the, the cherished EGOT. You know, you have an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Is the Oscar different from the other ones? Is it, is it the most stressful? Is it the most cherished? Or, or what do you think?
3: Well, it's the one that I knew best because, of course, that was, that was what I always wanted to be, was an actor. Right. So to have gotten a Tony, you know, because we produced a, a great musical. You know, and to get have gotten the uh, the Grammy because I of my one person show, is kind of wonderful. And the Emmy, you know, gotten because of because uh, of the View, and then I did something for Hattie McDaniel, oh, uh, right. a, a documentary about mm-hmm. Hattie McDaniel. So my my ego is buried. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it covers really all angles. So that's what makes it so exciting. That so exciting for me
2: when new people you got do you feel like you're welcoming them to the club like robert lopez who did a book of mormon and frozen is a recent one is he, are you got like is, bring him into the secret cabal
3: well you know once they meet and i hope they let me know where <laughs> you know.
2: i hope that you're you know at the door greeting everybody yeah, yeah. no that. i don't you
3: know it's it's you would think that we would that everyone would be much closer than they
4: are. You know what? We This should be a Vanity Fair annual party. we got to, have to do the annual EGOT party. <laughs>
2: I think so. There's like six uh, people living so. who have EGOTs. <laughs> so it would be a very exclusive party.
0: Well, this was so good. Webby, Webby, you're like the kind of patron saint of the Oscars. The, I mean, you, you, you've won. You've hosted. You're, you're always game to talk about it. We really appreciate it. Thank you for... It's
3: my pleasure. Thanks for wanting to. It's oh, something my God. that I've, you know, that I really... I don't know. I, I know it's flawed, but you know, we talking about not do not being present is kind of not right. Yeah. So I think if you're going to make a statement, get up on the stage and let people say, "Ooh, black
2: people." <laughs> is that your plan, just yeah. to be well, present? I think I think
3: it's evident once I show up. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I'm
2: here. Thanks. <sighs>
5: Ever since I was a little kid, I've wanted this. You don't know. <laughs> My brother's sitting there, he says, Thank God we don't have to listen to anymore. You can do it now. My mom's home, everybody's watching. I have to thank the people at Paramount. I have to thank Jerry Zucker for taking the time he took before he decided to use me, because it, it meant he was sure that it was for me. I had to thank Patrick Swayze, who's a stand-up guy, and went to them and said, I want to do it with her. I want to thank Demi. I want to thank everybody who makes movies. I come from New York. I was a little kid. I lived in the projects. And you're the people I watched. You're the people who made me want to be an actor. I'm so proud to be here. I'm proud to be an actor. And I'm going to keep on acting. And thank you so much.
2: Before we move on to our conversation with Tom McCarthy, a word from our sponsor. In Forevermark's pursuit of absolute beauty, every Forevermark diamond undergoes a journey of rigorous selection. That's why less than 1% of the world's diamonds are worthy of the Forevermark inscription, a promise of beauty, rarity, and responsible sourcing. Each Forevermark diamond originates at a carefully selected source that provides benefits to its country and local community. This ensures that a Forevermark diamond helps improve the lives of those involved in its journey so you can feel proud to give, own, or wear your Forevermark diamond. Forevermark. A diamond is forever. Find your design at forevermark.com.
1: That's why he had the reaction. Because he knew there were others. I think that's the bigger story.
2: But the numbers clearly indicate that there were senior clergy involved. That's all they do,
1: indicate. But are you telling me that, that if we run a start with 50 pedophile priests in Boston? Mike, we'll get into the same catfight
3: you got into on Porter, which made a lot of noise, but changed things not one bit. We need to focus on the institution, not the individual priests. Practice and policy. Show me the church manipulated the system so that these guys wouldn't have to face charges. Show me they put those same priests back
1: into parishes time and time again. Show me this was systemic, that it came from the top down.
2: So we wanted to ask you to go back to the beginning, not the beginning of this whole process, but uh, nominations morning when the Oscar nominations came out. Like, where were you? What were you prepared for? Who was with you? Who called? (laughs) Who called? I was at home with my wife. And, in New York? Yep.
1: Uh, we live in Tribeca and my two kids. And, you know, I had the great good fortune of the first time I was nominated, it was for Up and as a writer and uh, for the film Up that Pete Doctor directed. And I did, had no idea the nominations were happening. I just don't normally track that. And so I suddenly got a bunch of texts. I'm like, what is going on? Everyone's like, yeah, congrats. And then finally Pete Doctor himself called me. And he had to tell me. And he still gives me <laughs> grief about that. Uh, he's like, How? but this one, obviously, we're well aware, and I, we tried to ignore it as best we could. But let's just, we were up early with the kids anyway, uh, I have two young daughters, and uh, kind of getting them ready for the day in school and everything, and, uh, you know, turned the TV on, and they sort of sat there and waited. It's kind of grueling, you know? Yeah. It really yeah. is, because you can't help but get caught up in it all. You care. You care about the movie. You care about the project. You care about everybody's involvement and participation. So it was really exciting. I, I think maybe you know I was so excited for my editor. I've mm-hmm. done 5 movies with Tom McCardle and um I just felt like when they nominated him they got what we were doing uh, in terms of the movie and um I think his work is isn't uh, just really great and and subtle and um maybe possibly easy to overlook it's so seamless. So I was really happy they recognized.
4: Well him. actually let me ask you for for a layperson or me for instance how do you know whether a film is well-edited? What, what are you looking for
1: when, when you see, oh, this is like a really well-edited movie? Well, hopefully when you're watching it, you don't think about it at all. Right. I mean, I think that's the trick, right? Same yeah. with wardrobe, right? Yeah. Same with production design. And, and I think especially and specifically in a movie like Spotlight. I mean, look, we certainly took our inspiration from the world that we were recreating, which is the world of the newspaper business, which is not sexy, it's not flashy, it's not innately cinematic. And we were trying to be as observational as we could with our approach. And I, for my money, I think it's a very difficult thing to pull off. We could have missed in a lot of ways. But we were really trying to treat the audience as observers, (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not
1: as a movie audience Mm -hmm. if that makes sense we wanted them to kind of feel the immediacy of it and and just sort of fall into it and let it sneak up on them
4: I totally agree that that's what you did and that's what I love about the movie but I'm curious like technically what what are the choices then Are, are there moments where you're just like well we got two ways we can do it this way or this way what were the choices that you were making specifically? yeah we're yes well,
1: let's start there I mean look what we had it's it's there's a lot of information in this movie right and you really have dual storylines you have the story of the survivors and the people they're interviewing along the way and then you have the investigation itself and kind of the amount of uh, and the legal front that they're approaching trying to get these records from the church so it was really balancing that throughout and obviously we commit in spotlight a great deal to the craft of journalism to all the little bits and pieces mm-hmm. right and that was a bit of a gamble too, because let's be honest, it could have been flat, could have been boring. Mm -hmm. We thought there was something fascinating about that procedure. So part of it is marrying those dual storylines, finding the balance there. One being more um, intellectual in terms of its property and the other, the emotional value and finding that balance. The other is just momentum, keeping it tight, keeping it moving Mm -hmm. and still leaving enough space so that it feels real so Mm -hmm. that it doesn't start to feel just like a procedural, so that it feels more cinematic. It feels like a drama with procedural elements and thriller elements. You know, it's interesting when our rough cut on this movie was only about two hours and 25 minutes, which, you know, rough cuts can be, you could be 45 an hour over two That's
2: shorter than The Revenant, for example. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs)
1: exactly. We had a pretty tight script. I think we had a very, I think Josh Singer and and myself, we did a good job on the script. We shot what we needed. But I also think what's interesting about that is we probably only took 15 minutes out of the movie, but Mm -hmm. we spent another seven months just refining it and just Mm. shaping it and massaging it and just trying to get to that point where people just got sort of... uh captured by the film. You know, mm-hmm. it kind of kind of sneaks up on you and then you're sort of hopefully sitting up in your seat and and, and watching these uh, reporters try to uncover this. So that was the sleight of hand. I think editorially that was the trick.
2: Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. what David Simon said about the scene where they're doing the Excel spreadsheets of going through the, the registries of all the priests who are out sick and he was right. like, that just scratched that journalist part of my brain because that's what the work is that right. no one ever wants to put on screen because it is boring to watch unless yeah. it's done correctly like it is here.
1: Yeah, and you know, when Josh and I were, you know, we spent so much time with these reporters and them having to show us the library and the clips, even those like where they pull the clips from in, the, in that 1972 library. It was just, for us, we just thought it was so cool is the word yeah. we kept coming back right? yep. This is so cool. And we started to geek out on it. And to be fair, um, maybe too much, you know. We were just thought, well, <laughs> <laughs> we, we were suddenly like journalist nerds and found it all really interesting. Um, just the process. We're like, well, how do the clips get from the library to the spotlight room? <laughs> well, there's a woman who puts them in a file and wheels it. And we're like, that's cool. Can we, <laughs> yeah. we see The tray, and uh, how would we mount a camera on that tray? You know, we just got really excited about it, and I think we put all our chips on that. That if we were this excited and kind of this invested in this part of the process, our audiences would be too.
4: Well, it's so it's funny because it's really hard to know how a regular audience is because I am, you know, in media, and my fiance is a journalist too. But like when we were watching it recently, I kept. Like I'd seen it already. I was watching it my second time. I kept elbowing her. I was like, "Look, can you believe they got that too?" Right. My favorite thing is the second time through was all the. We already did that story. We covered that story already. I mean, yeah. that's the most journalism thing <laughs> ever. It's like so, and it's and it's a constant thing that they had to overcome yeah. to be like, "Well, we're doing it again, better this time." Yeah. And of course, the the excruciating. Development, spoiler alert, that they had done it and they hadn't done it right. right. They'd left it actually effectively undone. Right. Um, well,
2: and the fact that you guys are the ones who uncovered that, which I think is so interesting because this movie is so relentlessly detailed, but you kind of wrote in your own discovery into the movie. From someone who hadn't done it at the time, I wonder if that was a, if that was a struggle to put that in there because that isn't exactly how it happened.
1: It actually fit in quite nicely. There was a decision on whether or not to do it because it did come out of investigation. It did happen after the fact. You're right. We uncovered Josh and I uh, interviewing Eric McLeish, an attorney depicted in the film by Billy Crudup, let us know that he had sent the uh, the Globe. Report the Boston Globe, a list of 20 priests about 10 years earlier, uh, somewhere around there, maybe seven years earlier, after the Father Porter case. That didn't fit our timeline. And so we went back into their archives and discovered that. And we had to approach Robbie, who was the Metro editor at the time, and, 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 and in all effects, our hero and continues to be He's
2: played our by hero. Michael Keaton in the movie. He's
1: played by Michael Keaton, Robbie Robinson, and say, uh, this doesn't really jive with our timeline and what we've researched. And he had to... Uh, kind of address that and what he said is pretty much what he says in that scene which was I was Metro editor I'd just taken over I don't remember it but I missed it yeah. and look I think on some level that just speaks to the how hard the job is <laughs> you have so much coming at you so many threads so many bits and pieces flying by you it's like what you grab and what you don't I think ultimately what also speaks to is what was the culture at the globe at the time at the time that a reporter as good as Robbie Robinson possibly missed it that anything Aid and abet that any <laughs> culture. Um, so that uh, that all seemed to speak so well to our kind of macro theme of deference and complicity to the Catholic Church and accountability that we folded it back into the story.
2: And I assume Robbie Robinson and the rest of the team didn't have a problem with that detail getting added in there. As
1: I think Robbie had his hesitation about it. We had a a few conversations about it. You know, out of context, it could be misconstrued. Some people say, oh, I didn't know Robbie was the one who... Mm. It's not Robbie. In in the movie, he's, uh, he's, uh, I think, heroic enough to admit to it and, in a sense, fall on his sword. But I think everyone in that room and everyone at that paper has to be asking themselves... Why did we miss it? Mm-hmm. Why did I miss it? Why didn't I say something? Why didn't I know something? Especially reporters—that's their job. His friend says it to him in an earlier scene. Where were you? Where? What took yeah. you so long? Yeah. And I think it's a really compelling question—not just for journalists, but for all of us on almost every issue.
4: Yeah. Well, I gave you an opportunity to write that beautiful speech for Marty Baron there yeah. too, which is the real tearjerker yeah.
1: <laughs> if yeah. you work in this business. Yep. 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 <laughs> and, and, and in some ways almost clinical right so mm-hmm. marty's not a terribly emotive person mm-hmm. but i think he's really wonderful at uh distilling ideas and putting them into context and ultimately marshalling his forces to do what they have to do and i think that's what's so wonderful about that moment um and i think it's uh, i think it captured the spirit of who marty baron is
4: yeah. So that brings me to one of my questions, which is, you know, obviously there were hopes that Michael Keaton was going to get nominated. In the end, you got two nominations, which is amazing. Mark Ruffalo for Rachel McAdams. Are there, are there moments in the film that you think, looking back, like, ah, that's their Oscar nomination
1: moment? Do you – I mean, can you – I, I see it that know. way? I don't know. It's tough for me to think that way. I agree. I think Michael should have been nominated. I think he's terrific in the movie. I, think it, I understand that there's a lot of wonder, pe- people getting nominated in this tough competition, which it is, very tough competition, uh, and maybe having such a large, equally distributed ensemble in terms of their moments uh, added to that. Right. She, uh, that's my fault. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I don't know if there's moments. I mean, look, I, was, I thought the fact that Rachel was nominated was pretty incredible because it's such a subtle, nuanced performance. Yes. Right? She doesn't do anything flashy. She just is incredibly invested and incredibly present. I think some of her strongest moments are listening. And I'm a big believer that uh, any great actor is a great listener. It's one of the things I look for. So I I was incredibly, uh, I I thought that was incredibly gratifying and well-deserved.
4: Katie's been joking that she also uh, might have been rewarded for wearing some of those
1: outfits. I mean, those a pretty good I,
2: well You talk about how the costume design and the editing and production design should all be subtle. I wonder if the, uh, when everyone started talking about the costumes, maybe yeah. it's because we all remember wearing those pants. Like, yeah. why do you think we all get so fixated on all of those clothes? I
1: don't know. I think it was just so spot on. Yeah. When, you know, Wendy Chuck, our, our costume designer, it's one of the reasons that I hired her. I love the work that she does with Alexander Payne. I think she dresses real people like real people. Yeah. <laughs> she, not for better or for worse. Not, yeah, not everything fits perfectly. And look, the, for these people, it's as she said it's their uniform they don't give it a lot of thought they have their they have their things their ensemble that works well together and and uh, they you know Rachel wore a lot of the same clothes throughout that little variations on a theme and um, I think it speaks a lot to who the people are it speaks a lot to character
2: yeah there's a, uh, there's a great essay online by this writer, Matt Singer, about the visual style of the movie, which I think, like everything else you're talking about, really serves the purpose of being in the world and kind of not calling attention to itself. But about the presence of the churches and about the AOL billboard and things like that. Mm-hmm. Was there, is there any moment for you that sticks out that didn't lend itself to being told visually that you did find a way to bring visual storytelling to it, even though it's you know a story about people doing Excel spreadsheets in a room?
1: <laughs> with with this one there are probably more of those moments than not, right? Mm-hmm. I mean Masa my cinematographer Masa Nobataki Nagi that was like our first discussion. Where where do we find the cinema in this and what does that look like? And you know, we were just even conceiving shots. We thought this is that's going too far. Right. Mm. we got to figure out another way to do this. So maybe one shot which you're referring to, there's Mike Resendez in the film, played by Mark Ruffalo. He develops a relationship with a former priest who's been studying child abuse for 35 years within the Catholic Church and reporting on priests and, their, and the psychosis of abuse. And we had a scene where the group for the first time first time gets to meet Richard Seip but only on the phone mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's how they did they put him on the speaker phone and all gathered around and took notes and asked questions and we just do a really what I think is lovely subtle thing which is just we start tight on that speaker phone and pull back and it's all in one shot and most of it is Richard Seip who happens to be played by Richard Jenkins yeah. <laughs> and the team just listening yes asking a few questions listening but by the time we get to the really wide shot of them in this you know dingy little crappy office in the bowels of the Boston Globe (laughs) globe, Sipe starts laying some very heavy numbers on them, numbers that blow their mind. And we just leave them alone in that space, trying to wrap their head around it. And I just think that was a very effective telling. It was subtle, but it seemed to be very on point.
2: And the Richard Jenkins presence does give us the audience kind of a meta text where like, oh, this is important. I know that guy's voice. Like, even if you don't register it, it kind of tells you something just through casting. Yeah, and he has a wonderful
1: kind of folksy authority to his yeah. voice, you know, where you think yes. he's just that guy. And yeah. um, we spent a lot of time thinking about it. I think it was my editor who might have suggested it because we just sat in the room. It's like, what about Jenkins? I'm like, calling him. <laughs> so and like, I, I know you have his phone number. I think yeah, he, I called him. And he, <laughs> his first thing was like, oh, well, I'll do it, but I'm not very good at it. Yeah. I was like, let me worry about that. <laughs> yeah. and, uh Uh, It was terrific.
2: (laughs) Very good at acting. I think Richard Jenkins. Uh, He
1: was specifically talking about doing voiceovers. Oh. And I'm like, this isn't an ad. Uh, (laughs) Right. It's a character. Selling Volvos. Yeah. And I think (laughs) when he read it, he kind of got into it, and he was uh, he was he's just great.
2: So when you look at the uh, the other directors who are nominated for best director, and you know, do you feel like? the close shot on a tape recorder is going to have to, people are going to look at that in a car exploding in Mad Max and it's an unfair competition or
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> now, how
2: do you size up your competition uh, it, in Something it, like it this? is
1: crazy look I don't size it up um, you know I think because at the end of the day I feel like it's crazy to be comparing all of us <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. from Mad Max to Spotlight uh, to Room yeah. to you know The Revenant uh, the big shot they're all just completely different movies and all and I think all work very well so I consider myself fortunate to be in the group, fortunate to be nominated, and that's genuine. I mean, you know, nine, six nominations for a movie like this is just great, and I think that's it speaks to the work of the entire team everyone, producers, actors, creative team, crew. I mean, that's something we all celebrate together and it's its a really wonderful feeling. So I try to resist that as much <laughs> as possible and it's a slippery slope because it's it is. It feels like it's the college playoff suddenly and you're yeah. like, hold it, but I'm not not—I'm well, not a politician and I'm not an athlete. <laughs> yeah. I'm a filmmaker and yeah. why does this not feel natural to me comparing <laughs> movies? Right. So I do as much as they tell me to do in support of the movie because I think it's a big part of my job. I look at this period, you know, I, I think my co-writer, Josh Singer, I got credit him we were both talking about kind of hitting the wall a little bit recently like yeah. wow we've been talking about this movie for mm-hmm. four or five months and let's face it we're not that interesting and <laughs> you know there's other interesting people out there to talk to but it, I think he put it best we said let's look at it as we got six more weeks to discuss the issues of this movie yeah. and the platform for the movie and that is important people are in a sense paying us to talk about that and look we are giving voice to an incredibly disenfranchised group which is uh, uh, the survivors of child." abuse. And, and um, no one, they don't have a very big voice. <laughs> they don't yeah. have a platform. They're yes. not podcasting all around the country and they're not talking in the Washington Post and the New York Times. and the LA. You know, we are and we can speak for them. And, and this is very much a problem. They're thrilled by the response to this movie. Why? Because more survivors are come forward. Churches are taking action. Archdioceses are taking action. They're acknowledging the power of not only the film, but the actual the reporting that the film is based on. And uh, that's really exciting. The, that reward is incredible.
4: I was going to ask you what has what, what have been? Do you have specific stories of things that have come out of it, and, and what has the response of the church been?
1: Every day, every day yeah. we hear another story about survivors coming across. We hear from We hear from the survivor networks. We hear from lawyers like Mitch Garabedian, who's like, just so you know, you know, um, people coming through the door, they're talking. Uh, it's um, it's empowering people to come forward. Which yeah. which, uh, quite honestly, as soon as they had a sense of the movie, and some of these organizations early on had a chance to see the movie, they started preparing for it. They knew. Yeah they knew that that's the reach of movies they were really excited then and they're even more excited now. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it was interesting, after we lost at the Golden Globes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all went out and had some drinks and woke up yeah. the next day and realized we had work to do. But uh, Phil Saviano reached out to Josh and I, who's depicted in the movie by Neil Huff, and he's just a wonderful guy and a real activist on this cause. And he had posted on his Facebook page, if anyone wants to say it, send a message, and all these survivors had reached out with testimonials. And Josh and I, the next day we read through it individually and just called each other. We're like, wow, that's really amazing. You know, yeah. It was just like such, one, a wonderful gesture. And two, just incredibly powerful. So that's what we're hearing. And I think, you know, in this time of year where we get a little awards crazy, it's nice to focus on that.
4: Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things that we try to do is you know, it's it's tempting and it's fun for us to treat the whole thing like a horse race. yeah. Uh And then I'm glad you brought up this actual, like, th- human good things that come out of it. <laughs> yeah. And the, I think the other thing that, that makes it not seem like a completely absurd waste of time is that it brings attention to really great films, right? And so I'm curious to know, like, from the time when you started being... First there's the film's release, then there's, like, awards buzz, then there's actual nominations coming through, then there's Oscar nominations. Like, how does the marketing of the film and the availability of the film and, and visibility of the film change over that time?
1: Well, I think it's still happening, right? I think yeah. it's still out there. We're at. I think we're at more theaters now than we have been. So... Um you know, it's it's a difficult thing for me to gauge because yeah. I engage to some degree, but you're right. right, it's too much for me and it's too personal. So sometimes yeah. I disengage from all the noise because I just can't pay attention to everything. Yeah. You know, my wife's much better at it. She treats it like sports radio. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's Wait, did you hear about? Did you read this? Do you know? Uh-huh. Uh, and it and after times, I'm like, I, I like sports radio for sports radio. You, you yes. know, I turn on sure. ESPN to turn out the world. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I get it, and I and, and you're right, it's uh, it's exciting and interesting at times, right? And there's some really great people writing about the movies. In terms of the general public and the response, you could feel it as a filmmaker, because you just start hearing from people around the country. You know, you really do. I was just over in Ireland, in in the UK, promoting the movie, and that was really exciting. I mean, Ireland's transformation in terms of the the response to the Catholic Church is really strong, and it's still happening. And you could just feel the anger there. Yeah. You can literally palpably feel it, and what a hot topic this is! Yeah. And I feel like they have a sense that this is still playing around around the world, you know. And I think that's something that we take very seriously. It's one of the things that's been very tiring, quite honestly. Yes. About, and I use that word, you know, people work much harder than I do right now. I get it, but well, you're uh, not exactly eating raw bison liver. You I'm know? not I mean... eating raw bison. <laughs> liver. I want to, um, <laughs> but I will say, you know, part of it is when you're promoting a movie like. This, you spend a lot of time right now is talking about the issue and it's it's not yeah. just you can't just sort of phone it in. (laughs) Because everyone you're talking to really wants to engage on that. And like I said, the number of Q&As that I've done that a survivor has stood up and introduced themselves, either for the first time or like someone who wanted to just talk about it. And that sets a particular tone and you realize, okay, this is a serious issue that is very much alive and you have to show up for everyone. And that does, uh, it's taxing because look, I'm a filmmaker. I'm not an expert. I know more than most people do on this particular subject right now and I get a sense of, of how relevant it is. But it's nice when I do have an Expert with me, you know, to help talk about it because it's um, it's a very intense and complicated issue.
4: Sorry, have you had uh, blowback from the church at all, or are they kind of just like at this point folded?
1: No, you know, I thought, (laughs) yeah, yeah, folded. Um, (laughs) I thought they would remain largely silent. Mm -hmm. That was my guess, my bet. They've been surprisingly vocally supportive of the movie.
4: Really, uh, both in good.
1: terms institutionally and in terms of their laity certainly a lot of reach you know people reaching out uh, a lot of sort of the reviews and like Jesuit journals and things like yeah. that those have been some of my most interesting interviews actually yeah. talking to Jesuits well Jesuits are smart smart people they, I was yeah. educated by them yeah, same uh, here. at Boston yeah. <laughs> College and they're, and they're really interesting right yep. mm-hmm. and um, maybe, uh, maybe uh, in context somewhat liberal minded mm-hmm. and forward thinking and inclusive and they've just turned out to be some really interesting interviews but um the <laughs> cat yeah I mean even Cardinal O'Malley who took over for Bernard Law Cardinal Law in Boston he replaced him and he saw it and sort of went on the record as saying some nice things about the film and acknowledging the the power of the work of the spotlight team
2: yeah. do you get nervous when either those people are in like was there any audience you were nervous about screening this for that you were hoping for the reaction whether it be the Boston Globe staff or survivors absolutely Greece? so
1: you know it's the first time I've made a movie based on actual events yeah, based yeah. on real people written and directed co-written and directed I will say in order first uh, it was Incredibly nerve-wracking showing the reporters yeah. the first time because we had grown very close to them and we cared a lot about. Did you wait
2: till report. you had a final cut before you
1: showed? Uh, it to we them. were pretty close to locking. We hadn't locked. I showed Marty Baron in my edit room. That's terrifying, because he's an incredibly <laughs> impressive <laughs> yeah. and intelligent man, and he doesn't mince words. And then Josh and I took a train up to Boston and showed the rest of the team, and that it was just so, was so odd. Was such an odd feeling, yeah. and very different than showing actors or producers or audiences, just a unique feeling. So that was the first hurdle, and we had their enthusiastic support, so that was exciting. I would say The Survivors was the next one. Unfortunately, I was stuck on the West Coast, and Josh and actually two of the actors who play The Survivors, Michael Cyril Creighton and Neil Huff went up and showed it to a a number of survivors, two of them depicted in the film, and that was very emotional, Um, from all accounts. They were kind of immediately calling me afterwards and saying, wow, it's very emotional, and we're glad we shared it with them privately. And then finally, we did a screening down in D.C. Um, for 300 investigative journalists.
2: Oh, boy. Yeah.
1: That David Simon <laughs> moderated the panel. Now, that almost... Oh yeah, not I wouldn't be sure I'd show all. it uh-huh. to
2: David Simon, period. Not much. I'm
1: sure you guys know I was on the fifth season of The Wire. Yeah. I played a journalist. David was sort of the devil on my shoulder. I'm like, oh. And he was ended up editing right next to me in New York. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. Well,
2: is he working on Show Me a Hero? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Wonder, wonderful show. Great show. If
1: you haven't seen it, watch that show. Super cool. Paul Haggis did a great job on it but you know and I had to I, I asked my editor I'd be like oh Simon's here today damn it he's gonna see this Tom and Tom would be like it's a little late now we, yeah. we're close to done um, but David saw it and had some nice words and then moderated this panel and it was just uh, that. once we got over that hump I turned to Josh McCart I'm like okay I'm good now let's now yeah. let's turn it over to the critics and see what happens yeah. how, how much was that fifth season of The Wire an inspiration for this film do you think maybe more so than I'm, I understand right now right because one it was my introduction to what it is to be a journalist because I had to play one I had to learn I had to, you know do some research spend time with it I was committed you know to a very good script that fleshed out in, in very clear ways what a journalist does and shouldn't do in my case mm-hmm. so that was really interesting but two, David's just a great storyteller right how we approach I really love how he approaches story he has a journalistic approach to storytelling and I would say that certainly informed how we approach spotlight on some level so mm-hmm. probably quite a bit and and one I I was just motivated not to screw it up because I knew he was going to see it. So maybe that's the third way. But um, when I left that, it was such a seminal uh, season on that show. And and certainly in terms of journalists, right? I've heard from so many journalists, wow, this season of The Wire bam. Yep. So uh, I never planned on revisiting it when it wasn't until the story was brought to me that I thought I can't pass this up. Yeah,
4: yeah.
2: Does yeah. all this make you want to make your next movie about high school wrestling again or something that is much less of a heavy topic?
0: Just to <laughs> well, I think I'm done with high school wrestling. <laughs> Just thinking uh, of something a little light along those
1: lines. It's a great question actually, right? Because I haven't had much time to really, much creative space in the last yeah. six months because we I finished this movie in August. We premiered it at Venice, the Venice Film Festival in September. and I've been more or less on, the ride since yeah. so you know i 'm someone who i 'm a slow thinker, I really need some space, and you just sit in my office and stare at my dog and hope, hope <laughs> one of us comes up with an idea so uh, i don 't know, but I have started to wrap my head around it just recently as this winds down a little bit the press and, and, and anyway, and uh, it's you know i don 't know where I want to go next. Uh, you do sort of think, where did I come from? <laughs> mm. What was the last project or last two projects, and that does have an impact, but ultimately you 're just looking for something that just grabs you, that engages you that idea that image, you know, that story.
2: Yeah.
4: You know, you, you, some of the folks depicted in the, the film have had some criticisms, and actually the Boston Globe has covered some of that. Has that been weird being on the other side of their reporting?
1: A little bit, because I think there was one case that we didn't feel it was very good reporting. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for the Globe, but I think they did a very bit bad bit of reporting, and I won't mm-hmm. name any names, but they know. Mm-hmm. They missed it. They misrepresented it. It wasn't yeah. well reported or well edited. Yeah. I'll go on the record with that. That's my personal feeling. And the one you're referring to is uh, one gentleman in one scene that has about four lines. And I disagree with how he thinks he was characterized in the movie. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you're ever you're making telling a story about real life, you expect that. Actually, we expected a lot more, considering yeah. how many lawyers we depicted. <laughs> in the movie. Not to mention sure. the Catholic Church. Yeah. We didn't know. We, we were like, all right, brace yourselves, you yeah. know. And really, it was very, very, very minimal. Uh, and I, um, I think to some degree, much like the original reporting, that means we got it right. We had truth on our side to some degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, uh, I remember even Mitchell Garabedian because he's such an enigmatic character played by Stanley Tucci. And we didn't have much sit down time with Mitchell. He didn't want to, he didn't provide it. Right. Uh, Not he, surprising yep, but from, real, from Stanley Tucci's portrayal. I mean, and, that, <laughs> and that is pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. And um, that was it. We didn't talk to Mitchell much at all. Uh, And we would have. But then he came to the premiere in Boston. I heard the day of Mitchell Garabedian is coming to the premiere. I was like, it was like telling me the Pope was coming to the premiere, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, are you kidding me? Garab, I couldn't even wrap my head around it. Yeah. Uh, we got there, and I said, well, I guess I should acknowledge him. And they're like, but I didn't know. So I'm on stage with a number of the reporters. It was a very emotional premiere in Boston. Yeah. There were survivors in the audience. There was family. There was reporters. There was just the there was just the, you know, Boston. The city was there, and it's a very personal story to them. And at the end I said, well, I have to mention another one. Sort of question mark. Mitchell Garabedian? Yeah. Waiting to see. And he sort of leapt to his feet. I'll never forget <laughs> it. In, Like in the back row. We didn't give him a good seat. I don't know why. And kind of pumped his fist and gave us a thumbs up. Oh, and, wow. The shock on all of our faces, including the reporters, including Resendez, <laughs> who was just like Garabedian. He spent more time yeah. with Mitchell than Right, Right. You just never know. But, um, you know, I think ultimately Mitchell does come off as a hero. I think he did some really heroic work. Yes. Yeah, he's a definite, a specific guy, but you can't deny the work he did on behalf of the survivors, and continues to do. Continues to do. Yeah,
2: Yeah. I have a maybe odd question to wrap things up, but uh, I I heard that you left the set for a day to go do a small part in Pixels, which is a movie I saw. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, are you in it, or are you a voice in it, or what did I miss? I am in it. Okay.
1: And I'm hurt that you don't remember (laughs) me. I'm sorry. Uh, No, I didn't go. Save the worst (laughs) one for last (laughs) Katie.
2: Really? Okay. I put my heart I remember you so (laughs) well in Pixels. I'm in it
1: for a minute. I'm buddies with Adam. He put me... I play Michael the robot. I, like, walk through a scene. And (laughs) and it wasn't when we were shooting. I would never take time off when I'm in (laughs) pre-production or shooting. It was before pre-production. I was actually up in Toronto scouting, Mm. and they were shooting up there, and I play Michael the robot in in one... I'm literally on screen for about eight seconds. Uh, uh, you joke. Uh, but no, when I'm shooting, it, look, it's one of the reasons I haven't done as much acting, quite honestly, because, yeah. you know, the, the crazy thing about actors is their schedules change all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'll agree to do something. And They're like, great, can you come a month later? I'm like, no, are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. I'm making, you know, uh, but you have to be flexible. And that just worked out.
2: And an eight-second cameo is about as much acting as you've uh, got. Yeah,
1: that was it. That <laughs> felt like, OK, I got my taste. I'm good. I go back like to a, writing and directing now.
2: That seems like a good balance, though. You talk about wanting to move on to something different, like you do a little bit, bit part picture pixels and then make spotlight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, it it is.
1: It's all, it's a crazy business, right? And I do like how diverse it is and how crazy, you know, how many, how many different types of projects you can get involved with. That's part of the fun. You never know where you're going to end up next.
4: Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming by. This is great. We love the film and uh, congratulations. Thank you.
2: And now before we go big, before we go home, a word from our sponsor.
0: This episode of Little Gold Men is sponsored by Squarespace.com. If you wanted to start your own Oscar blog and compete with the likes of Gold Derby and VanityFair.com, you could. With Squarespace, you can make sites that look professionally designed regardless of your skill level with coding. There is no coding required, in fact. It has intuitive and easy-to-use tools, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GOLDMEN, G-O-L-D-M-E-N, to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build a beautiful...
2: And now it's time to go big before we go home. And just for fun, we've tossed two categories in this week, both original and adapted screenplays, which can be fun categories to consider together. And uh, I was looking at the original screenplay lineup and thinking, oh, it's obvious Spotlight is the big Best Picture contender here. It's uh, obviously going to win. And then I started looking twice at Straight Out of Compton, and it seems like a contest. What do you think, Richard?
0: I think you're right that Spotlight is probably the best bet, but I think that Compton is competition. I think that... Bridge of Spies, another Best Picture nominees competition, and I think Ex Machina might be, or at least wishfully thinking on my part, it is. You've been uh,
2: standing by Ex Machina for a long time. I,
0: I have, and I, I'm going to predict it in this category, even though I'm no one. None of, none of our listeners, well, they should all know by now, not to trust me on any <laughs> of these things. Um, I think the only one that probably isn't going to win is Inside Out. So, which that means it's going to win.
2: Yeah, sure. Right, no, no, that's that that you not know, that
0: works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mike, what about you? Yeah, I get the ex machina thing because
4: Alex Garland, you know, is a real writer. I think it helps to be like a real known writer in this category. I'm gonna I'm gonna say Spotlight though because Tom McCarthy shares the credit with Josh Josh Singer. And Tom McCarthy is you know, also the director, but I think both of those movies have that thing where they're small, they have sort of low budgets, and it really is so centrally about the story and the script and the dialogue.
2: Yeah, I think I'm going to go with Spotlight as well because if you, if you like Spotlight, but maybe you like Mad Max or The Big Short better, I think this is the screenplay is a really good spot to honor the incredible amount of work that went into making this movie. That's a really solid prize for that to win. So say you're not going to vote for it for Best Picture, you can vote for that, and then the people who are voting for it for Best Picture will vote for it here, and then ta-da you have a winner.
4: What's your What's map. your uh, straight out of Compton theory?
2: Oh just that you know because that's the only nomination It's this really well-liked film a lot of people feel yeah. like it deserved to get more so this is the one place where you can give it a nomination or give it an Oscar so why wouldn't you do it there?
4: That's true.
2: So moving on to adapted screenplay you've got again like a really heavy hitter best picture contender in the big short and then two other best picture nominees that are maybe smaller and then you have a previous Little Goldman guest Drew Goddard, so. I think yeah, he's got he's got—he's obviously got the bump. Uh, what do you think, Mike?
4: I don't know. I'm going to just stick with my theory about big name writers and say Nick Hornby for Brooklyn, because mm. that's a movie that a lot of people love. And I think is probably we all no one expects it to win Best Picture. So this could be a place to get a little Brooklyn love going. Also, Saoirse probably won't be able to beat Bree. So this could be their spot.
2: Yeah.
0: I think it could also be Carol's spot, I think mm-hmm. that you know like uh, you know voters don't exist in a vacuum. they know that people are upset that Carol didn't get a best picture nomination, and so here Phyllis Naj's beautiful adapted screenplay could could sneak in there if people can just figure out how to say her name,
2: <laughs> just Na I Nage. mean it's so pleasing it's to like
0: nasz, but. Right, right, exactly.
2: Um, I guess I'm just going to go the obvious route for both of these and go with the big short, because that is, again, like a whole lot of information crammed into a very entertaining movie. It's based on a very complicated book by Michael Lewis, and the movie works really well. And a lot of that's the editing and the direction, but I think the screenplay really holds together too, so.
4: And that's another one where Adam McKay is sharing the credit, mm-hmm, right? So exactly. the guy who directed it, the guy yeah. that has been out there pushing the movie, that's like a recognizable name.
2: And in this really tight best director race where no one really knows what's going to win, maybe that's a way to guarantee a win for for the guy who made the movie you liked the best. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And again, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes if you're so inclined. And this week's award for accurately predicting Hollywood strategy for producing blockbusters for the next 10 years goes to Whoopi Goldberg.
3: Make up a new goddamn superhero. You know what I mean? (laughs) Just make up a new
2: one. You can find all of us writing about award season and much more at VanityFair.com. We can also find this year's Hollywood issue, which looks spectacular and features lots of Oscar nominees. Uh, You can find all of us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich, Mike.
4: I'm at Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaws.
0: R-I-L-A-W-S.
2: And we are all at Little Gold Men. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman and edited by Tim Einenkill. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Find us along with many more great podcasts at panoply.fm.